Welcome to Grid Talk, a series of conversations with the leaders and innovators shaping the 21st century grid. Hosting the podcast is Marty Rosenberg, an award-winning energy journalist. The series is sponsored by the Department of Energy's Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Now, here's Marty Rosenberg with Grid Talk. Hi, and welcome to Grid Talk. Today we have with us Pat Kalan in New Mexico. Pat's chair, president, and CEO of PNM. And we're going to be talking about some very interesting financial approaches our company is taking to dealing with climate change and rebalancing and redesigning its grid and its generation system. Good morning, Pat. How are you? I'm great, Marty. How are you? Good, good. So I I know from your background that you studied journalism in college. So what's the headline you would put on what's going on at PNM in New Mexico regarding the Energy Transition Act? I'd put the um, headline as um, the state of New Mexico and PNM take the lead in climate change while ensuring a just transition for its workers. That's a pretty good lead. Let's dive in now and uh, talk a little bit about your plans to uh, retire San Juan in uh, 2022 and what you were looking at in potential stranded costs had nothing been done. Well, we are looking to, to retire San Juan in 2022, and this is really kind of a culmination of a long journey uh, for PNM. You know, PNM was a founding member of U.S. CAP in 2007. We supported Waxman Markey. We shut down two units of San Juan um, back in um, 2017. Um, and did the same thing there. We saved our customers money. And why did you do that in 2017? The Clean Air Act um, requires that um, visibility be restored in Class One wilderness areas and national parks uh, by 2064. And, and you know, we live in this beautiful part of the country, and there's 22 national parks and wilderness areas uh, nearby. And the EPA asked us to put selective catalytic reduction on. San Juan generating station, but it was really expensive. It would have been, uh, you know, about a billion dollars for the entire plant at the time. It would have doubled the book value of the plant. And we said, you know, that's not the right thing to do for our customers. And it's not the right thing to do for the environment. You know, you'll have the, the same generation that will be a little less knocks and socks and all. We already had bag houses and scrubbers, but it doesn't do anything to reduce carbon and it doesn't do anything to reduce water usage. So we worked with the state and the EPA for about 18 months and came up with an agreement where we would shut down two of those units and then put selective non-catalytic reduction on the other half of it. So that was only about $50 million for our part, so about $100 million for the plant. Much, much cheaper. So that bought you some time. It bought us some time. And now you're going full bore and closing right. the entire remaining two units. Right. And we were able to make that first closure without any job loss. We were able to handle it all through attrition and retirement. And uh, the loss of power from that, uh, how did you ramp up and uh, replace that power? We owned, um, we still own some of Palo Verde, and we had some megawatts at Palo Verde that were not in regulated rate base. They were out in the merchant marketplace. That was a little under 120 megawatts. So we brought that in to um, rate base. The other thing we were seeing even back then is we didn't need as much baseload power, right? What we needed were flexible resources to bring in renewables. And when we let the models run, the models also picked 
uh, a fair amount of solar to replace the, that shutdown of San Juan. We live in a, you know, a very great solar and wind potential part of the country. So renewables made sense for us. We needed less base load. So we'll talk about that in a second. Okay. You're ranked 10th in the nation in renewables. Uh, where would you like to see that go? Uh, just as a little sidebar here. On, on renewables? Yeah. Do you think you could become a major producer and do you have a plan to head there? We are working with the state now on how to develop New Mexico's renewables because you know we're a small state. Uh, we have about 2.2 million people and fairly temperate weather. So we don't use most of our renewables. So right now we're working on some transmission lines with the state. Uh, the state just passed some legislation to apply uh, industrial revenue bonds to transmission lines to help develop it. So we're in the midst of that uh, plan with the state. Governor Lujan uh, Grisham wants to uh, unlock that potential. So we're still working on that piece of it, but we think it's a huge opportunity. We are in the process at PNM of joining the um, Western Imbalance Market, mm -hmm. uh, the energy imbalance market, which will help bring us into that Western uh, renewables trading, which is going to unlock savings for our customers and the potential to export our renewables. Getting back to San Juan, uh, you were looking at a stranded asset there, and you came up with the en Energy Transition Act. In broad strokes, what's new about it, and what could the rest of the country possibly learn as it deals with stranded assets in, in the energy transition? One thing I want to go back to before I start the Energy Transition Act is, while we were shutting down those two units of San Juan, we did our integrated resource plan, which every utility has to do. It was a three-year process. And it showed us that San Juan, the other two units of San Juan, were not cost-effective. And so we were in the process of looking how to shut those units down in a way that made sense. I think sometimes people think the Energy Transition Act caused the shutdown of San Juan, and it didn't. It enabled the shutdown of San Juan because the economics for natural gas and renewables... These economics would be the, the low cost of gas versus the cost of coal? Yes, so we had the um, we had San Juan. To your point, we had on our books undepreciated costs of about two hundred and eighty-three million dollars plus some decommissioning costs. So in round numbers, it was about three hundred million dollars. And we said, look, we are willing to give up the shareholder profits on those. They're in rate based. They're used and useful. Uh, the book life went out until twenty fifty-three, which had been approved by the Public Regulation Commission and securitize that piece because we can give up the shareholder profits on it, but you know, it's like you sell the house, you still got to pay the mortgage off. And we would be willing to do that because we know we can then take that money that we get from the securitization bonds and reinvest it in clean energy and the grid, which as we know, we need to um, modernize in order to take advantage of renewables. We also wanted to make sure, um, working with the governor, that the workers were taken care of. Uh, the Four Corners area up there is very much an extractive area. Uh, there are a lot of Navajos up there. The unemployment rate uh, for young men on the Navajo Nation is very high. So we wanted to make sure uh, we could help that area uh, develop. And in kind of an ironic twist, the San Juan Generating Station was developed back when it was as an economic development project to use that area's coal resources to bring wealth and jobs to the area, so we're, we're coming full circle on it. Just returning uh, and closing the loop uh, on the um, financial plan here, you were able to take a potential loss of upwards of up to 300 million. 
to translate it into a 14 or million loss in 2023. Is that the way this is working? Well, I wouldn't say we're return- we're taking a loss in anything. We are foregoing shareholder profits on the undepreciated value of San Juan. But we are able to then turn around and put that money into new generating assets. So the way we see it is we're not taking a loss. We are preventing our shareholders from having to take any kind of a write-off and saving our customers about $7 a month by securitizing. Got it. So you you recently, uh, I think you had an earnings call with, with analysts. What is Wall Street asking you about this, and are they excited about this, or are they kind of furrowing their brow and asking questions? No, our, our, our shareholders and our analysts are thrilled about securitization. Part of it is I, most utility shareholders, for all utilities, are long-term shareholders, so they have a long-term point of view. And they see we can take the money and turn around and invest it in the grid and clean generating assets. And I get each shareholder or any analyst would tell you they'd rather see a u- utility investing in clean energy in the grid than in a coal plant. And they actually, when we did the same thing on retiring two units, even though we didn't securitize, they were supportive of that. I think the issue for other utilities is a lot of people don't like the securitization tool because the utilities feel they're uh, entitled to a return on and a return of those assets. So so this is reflecting kind of an attitude shift by you and your management team, isn't it? And uh, what kind of reception and questions are you getting from your peers around the industry about this? Um, I I think there are are some people that are very interested in it and uh, see that it can be part of a global solution to a clean energy transition. Um, There are some, uh, quite frankly, that are not happy um, that we did this uh, because they feel we gave up money that uh, should have gone to shareholders, and that is obviously other utilities' determination uh, to uh, make. But, you know, we think the the solution to climate change is, is... going to require compromise on everybody's part. And this solution that we had in New Mexico was such a win for the workers, for the environment, for us, the communities. The governor was able to um, move to an 80% renewable portfolio standard. Uh, we were able to make sure it was a clean energy standard because we're not, we don't believe we can go to 100% renewables um, in the near future. We haven't seen the technology to do that. Just to get the milestones on record here, though, the Transition Act calls for 50% renewables by 2030 and 80% by 2040, and by 2045 having a carbon-free grid. Those are pretty ambitious goals. Yes, they are, and they won't work for every state. Um, the reason we are confident in the renewable portfolio standard piece is because of the wind and the solar quality that we have in our state and because of our ability to join the imbalance market. Uh, and we know what kind of renewable capacity there is uh, in the western part of the United States. We are confident on the clean energy piece because we have nuclear. We said to the governor and we said to the state, look, that last 20% makes us a bit nervous, and not all the technologies are there yet. So we have put together a working group with uh, Sandia National Labs, uh, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, New Mexico State University, our land office here in New Mexico, um, and the Western Grid Group to evaluate new technologies. We're also very active in EPRI, the Electric uh, Power Research Institute, to figure out how we get that last 20%. I mean, we're looking at pumped hydro, we're, look, we're looking at hydrogen, 
Um, you know, we've seen things like kinetic energy. We're looking at um, iron flow batteries. So there's lots of exciting stuff out there that we're confident. One innovation that's off the table, as I understand it, is uh, some are floating the idea of looking at carbon capture at San Juan. And as you know, this is something that's been floating around going back to 2003 with the uh, DOE's Future Gem project, where carbon capture was on and it was off again. And do you think that the financials and the technology of carbon capture just will not work? And uh, what's what's your impression on that? Well, I think there's two issues. One, um, for here at us in New Mexico, what we need are flexible resources and you know, coal plants in, are, are baseload plants. They're really hard to run as, you know, um, cycling plants for renewables. So whether it's carbon capture or just plain coal plant, they don't really work in the new flexible generation portfolio. We have seen carbon capture and storage technology um, work, right? In the United, in, or in the Northern Hemisphere here, we have Petronova in Texas and Saks Power. The concerns we have are... Um, uh, twofold is that one, we haven't seen it work at the scale of San Juan generating station. And San Juan is a, is a very large station and it's old in coal plant terms. It's younger than I am, but you know, it, it's not a purpose built um, power plant. And we also worry about what the costs of it are. We think that the costs that are being estimated now, uh, if you look at the cost of the other two are, are low. And so, you know, we're a utility uh, with a smaller balance sheet. We just don't think it fits into our system's needs, and we are, are not going to take a technology risk on behalf of our customers. It just doesn't make sense. So you're not really vetoing the technology per se, but just saying it's not right in this particular circumstance. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. That's a very elegant way of putting it, Marty. Let's talk about some of the other efforts you've done where you have 18 solar centers, $270 million invested in solar. Your energy efficiency program, I understand, reaches 375,000 homes with 525,000 customers. That's got to be a sizable percentage of your customer base. How successful have they been, and, and what have you learned from those efforts? We're very, very um, happy with our energy efficiency programs and very proud of them. Um, what we have learned is we, we're kind of done with the, what I'd call the low-hanging fruit and we've learned that customers are very adaptable. There's a new, you know, I've been doing this for, for a while now, and there's a, what I call a new ethic in customers. And whether it's they just want to save money or whether they want to do their part for the environment, people are more open on how to use less energy. Uh, the next step for us is the ability to work directly with customers through smart meter technology. We do not have smart meter technology here uh, in New Mexico, it's a little difficult to make a business case when your average monthly bill is, you know, $75, $77 a month. Uh, we will be filing in an energy efficiency um, filing to do smart meters, but that will be the next step so that customers can get more real-time information and control their usage uh, more directly. Um, we're also uh, looking at some more electrification um, opportunities. We're looking at a vehicle electrification. Just on the uh, smart, pat on the smart meter thing, um, there's been an approach that has a certain capital cost with it. Given the parameters you just discussed of the demographics of your customer base, are there new technologies that you're looking at 
that could give you the flexibility of time of day rates, et cetera, uh, without the cost of smart meters? Is there a shortcut here? Um, not really, because you want to build the functionality to be able to do more renewables integration, you know, to participate in the, in the imbalanced market. So you, we don't want to kind of, you don't want to do kind of a temporary solution to your customers. And then a few years later, do another solution to your customers. And most of the money in smart meters is in the back office and the communications protocol, not the meter themselves. Okay. Turning back to your generation uh, plans, um, You've got quite a bit of gas generation, but you're going to be backing off of that in the 2040s. Is that correct? That is correct. And 2040s is a long time away, but it's really not in terms of utility capital planning. Um, how are you going to get there and what technological challenges do you have to address before you get there? Well, we will get there. Most of our current um, gas plants um, depreciate before... 2040. The, the current ones that we have, you know, are all go off. The new gas plants that we are talking about putting in, um, we would just give them shorter depreciable lives. So we would depreciate them in 2040. And Marty, when you put that in the integrated resource plant and run the numbers, even depreciating those plants more quickly, it still is more cost effective than staying in San Juan. Um, what we are looking at um, to get to that carbon-free piece then is we are looking at hydrogen, right? A lot of the big uh, turbine manufacturers are trying to see if they can run turbine machines on hydrogen. And we are also looking at batteries, but we're looking more at iron flow batteries because right now the lithium-ion batteries just don't give you the storage you need. And believe it or not, we have some pumped hydro here um, in New Mexico, and we're looking at exploring that with the Navajos, um, because that could also help take some of that um, bridge there for us. So we're not, like I said, we're not 100% sure led on that last piece, but that's what we're looking at, and that's why we've got that group of really smart um, and renewable energy labs and EPRI and others that we're working with. Let's uh, take a minute and, and turn to something else that I know it's been important to you. And, and you and I talked quite a few years ago uh, about your views of building a diverse workforce and uh, being one of the first one of the first prominent female executives in the utility sector. Uh, how successful have you been? What hurdles remain to, to clear? And, and what kind of challenges are you taking up to, to advance that goal further? Um, we, we've been really successful here um, at PNM in terms of building a diverse workforce. We actually just did um, some promotions, and we pr promoted two new female officers. About a third of our officer workforce um, is female and diverse. And I think part of it for me, I have a built-in advantage because when people see a female CEO leading a company, they're very attracted to it. So I think we've made a, a lot of progress here at PNM. I will say we have a built-in advantage that um, we are our state is a majority of, um, of minorities. So we can um, have a diverse workforce. I think the industry is now um, getting there, and we've had some progress in terms of commitments at EEI. I think everybody understands that in this tough of a workplace environment with full employment, you have to come up with strategies um, to attract people that may not have been attracted to your industry before. And one of the ways we've, we sell this industry, and we've sold it at PNM, is, you know, 
you wouldn't have Google, you wouldn't have Amazon, you wouldn't have Facebook if you didn't have us. And we find that a lot of especially younger and diverse folks want to work for a company in an industry that has a sense of purpose. And man, we have one here. So um, we have become much better salespeople. Uh, we used to not want to sell our industry. Um, and, and you've seen it. I don't have uh, the latest numbers, but you know, the electric utility industry has more female CEOs than I think any other um, uh, public sector. And people have been requiring uh, females on boards. That's counterintuitive because you look around at EI meetings for, for decades and you hardly saw any females. And, and you say that that's changed dramatically? It has. I mean, you look, there's myself, there's Lynn, there's Patty Poppy, um, there's Mary Kipp. Um, well, Kimberly just retired. Uh, the new person at um, um, Green Mountain Power is female. So I think what's happened, uh, Marty, is I think... You know, it used to be much more of an engineering and a financial discipline. And while you still have to be very um, good operationally and financially, the key to success is stakeholder management. And this is somewhat of a stereotype, but in general, those tend to be skills that women are better at. I've seen some women that aren't good at it, and I've seen some men that are very good at it. But it's a new, it's a new way of being successful. So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit and... Uh ask you if you think this diversity of um, female entrant into management and uh, diverse workforce was a significant factor in PNM's developing this transition strategy and its flexibility in approaching stranded assets where a typical male engineering executive of 10, 15 years ago would have said, look, it's legitimately in rate base. We put it there with approval. Let's earn every drop, every penny out of it. Whereas you have a, a, a more flexible look at these things. How much of these, that do you think is a result of the changing workforce at, at your company and other companies? Uh, um, um, I think, Marty, I think you hit it spot on. You, you didn't put me on the spot. I think absolutely um, that diversity that we have here made a, a difference in our thinking and our decision-making and one of my colleagues was out doing a radio interview and the, you know, the producer was very young. And afterwards, she pulled him aside and just went on and on about how thrilled she was with our company and what we were doing in the, in the clean energy. I was out at the airport and somebody came up to me and said, you look familiar. And I said, yeah, I'm here a lot. And he goes, no, no, I know who you are. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, I'm going to get blasted. He went on for five minutes about how thrilled he was with our company. So I think having that diversity having younger folks and getting out there has made a huge difference because I think we reflect our communities more. Do you think having a female governor helped too? Absolutely. Were you able to wink at her and she winked back and said, let's do this? Um, but we don't wink at each other, but um, <laughs> yes. I mean, she, we, I'm in her office and, and I'm like, oh, you're making me a little nervous, but we'll figure out how to get through it. So, you know, yeah, and part of it is she and I know each other and we trust each other and we have a good relationship. And, and you know, at the end of the day, you know, you have to have trusting relationships to do these kind of things. And, you know, we actually didn't write the, the, the Energy Transition Act. And it was the scariest things in our lives when the environmental community said, no, no, we're going to do this. We'll call you because you need to help us with securitization. And I said to my lobbyist, who actually has to be female and diverse too, and I said, when am I going to see the bill? She said, we're going to get to see the bill at the same time everybody else does. And at that point in time, you just have to trust. Mm -hmm. Obviously, um making this transition act a success and implementing it is going to be a sizable lift on your uh, 
plate for the next few years. But pushing that aside, what other accomplishments would you like to to achieve, and, and what other plans do you have uh, coming down the pike that the rest of the industry might be interested in learning? Uh, well, obviously, uh, the Energy Transition Act and the whole portfolio transformation. So, what we do about Four Corners is is job one. Our second pieces here are the the grid modernization here at Pan Am and the development of the renewable resources and then continued growth in Texas. You know, Texas is still growing. It's not just the Permian Basin, although that's a big piece of it. So that continued growth plan that we have um, in Texas. You talked about the uh, resources. Uh, Everybody knows there's a lot of sun in uh, New Mexico. Um, And California, as well as Texas, will will have needs for power. Do you see your business model uh, evolving in terms of developing resources that might be useful beyond your state and beyond your customer base? Um, absolutely. And whether or not that's in the development of the generation or the transmission, um, we probably prefer transmission over generation development, but we do have a, a, a joint venture, <coughs> excuse me, with um, AEP um, to develop renewables, but we are definitely turning our eye to how we help the state get those renewable resources to California. And, and I think a little known secret is that we have the number three onshore wind potential in the United States here in New Mexico. Uh You have about 15,000 miles of transmission. Do you want to grow that or do you want to evolve it in terms of its capability? We need to do both. We need to evolve it in terms of the capability, but we also need to grow um, our transmission because a lot of that wind is in places not served by any transmission yet at this point in time. What excites you most about your job right now? Being able to help um, lead this energy transition is just um, so exciting. That and turning, you know, looking at the new generation of folks um, that are coming up to be leaders. Between the two of those things, it's, it's you know, it's, I've been doing this a long time, um, but it makes it incredibly exciting to be here and come to work every day. Thanks, Pat. Thank you, Marty. Good to talk to you. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks to, to Pat Kalon of Pan Am for sharing her insights about changes in the electric industry, particularly in the uh, Southwest in New Mexico. You have been listening to Grid Talk. If you like this podcast and want to hear more, please visit our site at smartgrid.gov. You can send feedback to gridtalk at nrel.gov, and we encourage you to give the podcast a rating or review on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for listening to Grid Talk, presented by the U.S. Department of Energy Office of Electricity Advanced Grid Research Division. Subscribe through your favorite podcast provider or visit smartgrid.gov for more information.